This is Medicaid Leadership Exchange, a podcast where Medicaid directors and other guests get frank about what it's like to steward the nation's largest health insurance program. 80 million or one in four individuals in the U.S. receive health care through Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. Medicaid agencies administer a complex web of programs. Listen in as we explore some of the challenges leaders in Medicaid navigate and their top priorities to deliver services and build health. Hello, and welcome to the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. I'm your host, Gretchen Hammer. Last season, we hosted a series of conversations exploring the leadership commitments of Medicaid directors and their senior teams as they work to address equity, both within their agencies and within their programming. Ensuring justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion within a Medicaid agency and within the program means sustained work. And so this is why we're going to revisit this topic today. In today's conversation, we'll explore with two Medicaid leaders, where are they in effectively leading their Medicaid agencies to address health equity? Where are they finding success and where are they experiencing challenges? So I've invited two wonderful state leaders from the state of North Carolina and the state of Wisconsin. And then as always, we're also joined by Mark Larson from the Center for Healthcare Strategies, who will close out our podcast episode by reflecting back on the leadership lessons that he's heard as we explore this issue of our sustained commitment to advancing equity. So first I'm gonna have Dave Richard from North Carolina go ahead and introduce himself. Go ahead, Dave. Hi, Gretchen. Thank you. I'm Dave Richards. I'm the Deputy Secretary for Medicaid in North Carolina, which is a different title for Medicaid Director. have been doing that for almost six years now. And uh, prior to that, worked with the state in behavioral health. And for that, uh, spent my entire career doing nonprofit leadership. Terrific. Thank you. And then I'm going to have Jemai Chapman from Wisconsin. Hi, Gretchen. Thanks for having me. And hello, Dave. My name is Jemai Chapman. I'm with the Division of Medicaid Services in Wisconsin. I act as the Executive Policy Advisor uh, for equity. Terrific. So when we began the conversation last season about equity, there was this real important focus on both the internal work of advancing justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as the work that can be done through the policy levers of the program. So maybe I wanted to start with you, Jemai, given your uh, leadership role in this area, on the kinds of things you've been doing internally to advance justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and sort of how you are moving toward a vision uh, in the Wisconsin agency. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think for a lot of folks hearing that question, it might seem like there's an easy path to that. But unfortunately, unlike most uh, governmental initiatives, uh, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion has deep roots based in non-bureaucratic elements, right? So what we naturally would think about how to govern, let's say, a program, the intricacies of equity and uh, how it interplays with governmental programs are such that they are oftentimes outside of, of the tables that are having those conversations. And so first, I think my job has been to help our organization understand some of the nomenclature, some of the vernacular, some of the verbiage used around um, this work. You know, the great thing about social media is it it's good with creating buzzwords, right? But the but the one of the negative things is that it it's not conducive to critical thinking. And so you get in spaces, or I find myself in spaces where I have to explain 
a lot of foundational pieces to this work. And I think that's where I'm really trying to move our organization to, uh, because I truly believe without a comprehensive communal understanding of, of this work and all of the intricacies that it brings, we're never really gonna get to a point where we can effectuate change on the member level or the staff level. Terrific, thank you. Dave, how about you? What have you all been doing internally and what are you working toward? It's a great question and really appreciate Jamal's um, insight on that. For, for us, we, we, we actually, I would love to say that we have begun this work well before what happened in Minnesota with George Floyd, but truth is, is that that sent us into a very different place. I, I'll just confess that we, I believe that we were an organization that actually were in, in very good place. You know, when I look across our organization, we look like the community in terms of the, you know, the diversity of our organization. As that happened, we we began to have really difficult conversations um, and actually what I would describe as listening um, much more than just thinking about what we were. And we realized is that although we, we had a diverse organization, what we had is a diverse organization that was really top heavy um, in the wrong way. Uh, one that 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 we we I don't think we had overt racism, but the truth is is that what we didn't have is a process by which we were really listening to minority voices, to people that looked like our community, and that people were in our leadership roles. So we've embarked in a very different approach, one in which that says that that for us our organization to be truly successful in supporting our beneficiaries across the board, uh, folks in very different um, every ethnic group that we have to look like that community, but we have to have our leadership look like that community. And we have to hear those voices in a very different way. I think we've, we're very early in that journey. It's been you know almost a year and a half, but very early in that journey. But some of the things that we've recognized is that we, we have to have a real diversity, equity, inclusion group. We have a committee right now, but that group has to drive our policy. But frankly, the, um, that it's the job of everybody in Medicaid to, to really dig deep and think about um, what has been, I think, you know, obviously uh, issues of bias and prejudice that, that um, often we don't see and feel. I will say that for, for me, this past you know, year and a half has been one in which I've examined my past and future and it passed in, in a way that I've never done before and what biases I brought to the table. And, and, it's, and I will tell you, it's not always been um, pretty, right? When I think back and when I see those, it's been probably the hardest thing that I've done in my time in leadership, but also say it's been the most rewarding. So long story short is that our goal is that what we do is we embed um, equity and inclusion in everything that we do in the organization at the staff level so that we become much better in terms of how we as an organization actually uh, create policy for the people that we serve. Terrific. So what I hear from both of you is language, new language had to be acquired, new power structures established, you know, ongoing structures of accountability, um, but also some, some bridging between personal and professional reflection and courage, right? This is, you know, what we, what we know and how we come to our work and then how that expresses itself. So those are some of the things you all have been working on. Where have you seen some of the greatest challenges? Um, what has been most difficult about the work? And then I do want to ask about where you're finding success and feeling like you're making progress. But what about challenges? What's been the most challenging? Dave, you mentioned it was challenging personally to do some of the reflection. But organizationally, where have you all seen it a little more difficult to move forward than maybe you anticipated? You know, the, the thing that has been fascinating to me, that the, the most difficult part of this is really trying to figure out how to organize the work, right? Is that, you know, we are, you know, we, we're great at doing this stuff for all of the programs that we run. But when we were thinking about, 
equity and how we organize. One is that we wanted to make sure we had the right people engaged in that. And honestly, sometimes the right people that we thought, and, and when I say collectively, we as an organization were engaged, didn't always work the right way, right? Did, did people clash in that side? So how do you, how do you, how are you inclusive in that effort, but allow for the sort of organic leadership to work with, and I would say from my perspective, how, how, how you don't jump in and try to fix, right? Because frankly, a lot of it is, it's, that's how we fix ourselves as an organization and really seeing that work. So the way I describe it is that sometimes it's messy and, and that's not easy to, to, um, to accept that it's messy as you're doing this process. And so uh, often I would think that this is what should happen next and the, our equity committee would say, no, that's not the right answer. We're gonna do something. Often would say, we wanna move really fast. We have a vendor that comes in that said, no, <laughs> slow down. Because if you go fast and you don't do the language, the things that Jemima was talking about, if we don't do that work, together, then we're not going to succeed. So you have to slow down. So it's really, I think that sense of wanting to control the process, but realize that you have to lead, but you can't control and that we have to accept as the process goes by. So that, that to me has been one of the most difficult um, things in this process, but again, rewarding. And I've learned an awful lot through that. Terrific. Thanks. Jemai, how about in Wisconsin? Yeah, first, uh, Dave, that was really inspiring um, to hear that kind of reflection. Uh, I think that is the kind of support that DEI leaders across the country really need in order to uh, feel safe, to feel safe to have the conversations, feel safe to do the work, feel safe to uh, challenge authority, feel safe to uh, to to uh, disrupt the, the power structures that exist, um, knowing that having someone at your level have their back is extremely important. So I really appreciate that. And then I also wanted to um, also say, you know, it wasn't just for white people that woke up during George Floyd, right? Like I also had a moment, right? And I'm sure there's other people who have historically been marginalized that had a moment. And that moment for me was, I haven't been doing enough. Um, and that was a hard thing for me to kind of come into um, uh, and acknowledge that, you know, for all of the anger that I've had throughout my life, I never really uh, focused it in a productive way until the George Floyd incident happened. And I really needed to do some self-reflection and figure out how can I be productive in this space? I mean, that is actually what prompted me to the role that I'm in today. But anyway, I just wanted to point that out. But um, that's a great point that you made that I think all of us had to do some self-reflection. Um, in terms of uh, challenges of actually operationalizing the work, for me, that that's the easy part, actually. Um, but I think my challenge is helping our leadership understand that it is incumbent on them to be a part of dismantling the system and that dismantling the system does not mean that we need to throw away all of the pieces. It just means that we have to look at it a little bit differently. And um, through a lot of the different priorities and uh, crises that we faced in the last several years, I think it's been really hard for people to focus on, on um, structural issues uh, because they always go back to what they know because they know that it has worked for them in the past. So my current challenge is really uh, trying to get folks to um, understand what commitment means. And if they say that they're committed to something, um, 
getting them to to put that commitment into action. And so it's been a um, difficult in that respect, but like Gretchen uh, mentioned, there has also been some highlights as well. And I'm happy to share those too. Jump in on two things that Jemai said that really, really are help, helpful to me thinking about that is that one is this sense of commitment, right? Is that it is so easy when, when we all say that we're committed to do this, that the next crisis happens. And, and we move. So I think part of that's that accountability, right? How do we how do we embed accountability into the work that we're doing to make sure we don't leave on that? And then and then just one of the one of the frankly the best experiences, hardest experiences that I've had in this process is spending time with people throughout our organization um, and listening to stories about about how how frankly biases impacted them. And, and frankly, inside the organization with their felt. And again, those are really tough conversations, but, but they've been so important because I think back that, that, that what I feel accountable for is to make sure that that never happens again, because I don't want to have that, I don't want to have that hard conversation in five years from now, right? I want to make sure that we've dealt with that, but so important for that accountability side of it. All right. I'm going to come back to the successes because I think that's really important, but I want to pull through the thread, um, I think that to build off Jemaya and Dave, what you were just talking about, you know, one of the other places Medicaid often has an aspiration but may fall short is authentic beneficiary engagement, right? To your point, when I was a Medicaid director sitting and listening to moms tell me they have to get up at five in the morning to try and get in the queue for our customer call center, a very humbling evening that I spent with those moms, right? You come back reinvigorated with your commitments to get your systems to work better for people. So as you all have been on this internal journey of accountability, of new language, of power sharing, how has that translated or how are you working to try and make sure you're re-engaging beneficiaries in new ways? Um, what are you doing sort of programmatically to, to open that same work out to the beneficiaries? And I don't know if either one of you can start with that, but that sort of felt like the right next question. It is the most difficult thing that we've tried to achieve. You know, we've actually been very good at some of the specialty organizations, right? So we, we, we're great at talking to our, our waiver services for DED. Families are really active in there. But actually reaching the broad scope of Medicaid beneficiaries has been very difficult. And I'm, I'm going to be clear, we have, not, we have not been good at that yet. Um, we're, we're getting better at speaking to uh, providers who have been excluded to our from our communities, right? From from supporting there, but but we have yet to done a, do a good job at really reaching those beneficiaries. So we're looking for all sorts of good ideas on that side. I think I think we can get there, but but it certainly have not been something that we've achieved where we we want to be at this point. Yeah, and a lot of this plays into the social determinants of health for a lot of our our members and their ability to access the current ways we do communicate with them, right? So if you look in the rural areas, you, they're about 10 to 15 years behind technologically speaking in terms of their ability to do telehealth or have access to various forms of um, services that folks in urban areas or other areas where Wi-Fi or the internet exists or is prevalent, uh, they have a lot more access to. And then you talk about folks in the urban areas who 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 can't get a ride to um, to their services or to their providers. And you know the list can go on and on. But the reality is that I don't believe, and I've been in public assistance programs for the majority of my professional career um, in TANF, uh, SNAP, you name it. 
And the reality is that we don't do a good job across the board, not just with equity in terms of engaging folks. Um, we don't do a good job across the board of understanding what the communities need from the programs before we even start the planning processes, the implementation process, the operational uh, frameworks that we put into place. And I think we can, like Dave said, Wisconsin certainly can get a lot better at that. But I think as um, healthcare as an industry can, can do a lot better. And to be quite honest, I think our outcomes will be a, a lot more positive. Uh, when you increase engagement, studies have shown that folks' uh, health outcomes get more positive because they understand their healthcare more, they feel comfortable with, with their providers, um, and they feel safe um, to have conversations that they might not otherwise have. So yeah, Dave, I, I totally agree. This is probably the most foundational piece of inculcating a lot of the principles that Gretchen talked about into those programs and services that we offer. Well, I didn't mean to start with an area of greatest challenge, but I do want to circle back on um, where you're finding success programmatically, and then we'll finish with where you're finding success internally. But, you know, yes, we all agree in our conversation here that there's a real opportunity to improve the way we engage beneficiaries. Um, but I know that you all have also made changes, contract requirements, quality incentives, you know, other kinds of programmatic investments that you've been using to try and advance equity. Jemai, I don't know if you can speak to any of those in Wisconsin, but maybe just an insight into how you've translated not only your internal commitment, but your external programmatic commitments. Um, great question. So the we've had a lot of successes. Um, there's a lot trust me, for me to complain about. <laughs> People here probably know that all too well, but um, we have had successes because projects are always running. It's very difficult to, on the back end, say, what about equity? And that's really what's been happening for a number of years, right? And I don't think that just is in Wisconsin. But even in that space, um, in Wisconsin, you mentioned um, an incentive program that we recently just closed out where we incentivized our health plans to scale up their collaborative efforts with community-based organization on uh, vaccine equity. And the great thing about that, and something I share with the HMOs, is that I, I, I didn't count success as the number of vaccines. I counted success as um, the collaboration efforts, the communication that was developed, the data tracking and mechanisms and infrastructure that was put in place in order to report on outcomes, the various innovative ways that folks were able to perform community engagement. I think that was the most successful kind of highlight of, of efforts that we uh, undertake. And that's kind of what we're looking for in this kind of space where we're not quite ready with the infrastructure, but we have obviously resources to make changes. Um, looking for those silver linings where you have things that you put out there, you get your lessons learned, and now you know when you get another project that you can start equity in the beginning, you, you have these lessons that you can start implementing within projects that commence afterwards. So uh, that's really where I've been focused on um, right now in the interim. It sounds like almost also setting the expectation that in any new project, equity, equity will be a core part of the planning or of the program design that helps with that as well. It does. And again, back to Dave's 
point, it, you have to be committed. If you're not committed to that, you can't just put a, a question on your project initiation documentation where you're chartering projects and say, how does this affect equity? That is not uh, implementing equitable procedures in uh, program design. And so people have to be very intentional about what that looks like. What is the decision-making structure? Who's doing the research? What data are you analyzing? What community organizations are you using to inform on how you should be analyzing the data? What qualitative information? So the, that's the other biggest challenge, if I may, Gretchen, too, it just expound a couple of minutes here, too, because I think it's very important for listeners to understand that for folks like Dave and I and other DEI leaders, like we can see the scope and it's humongous. It's very large. And it's uh, a challenge that I've had is getting other people to see that scope when typically they are siloed in that whatever program functional area they they live in and so to get them to see that hey we need to talk to dot about potentially offering some transportation subsidies or we need to talk to doc about getting this um reincarceration data so that we can create a matrix to determine a risk pool right like those things are always flowing in our minds, but to get our fellow counterpart leaders to kind of understand that that space is, is, is challenging. And so it makes it difficult um, when people talk about the work because um, in their mind, they're used to their processes, their procedures, their operations. And it's a lot bigger than most people expect once you get them in a room and break it down for them. Terrific. Dave, yeah. go ahead. That's, that, that's, that's terrific. It's terrific insights. You know, I, I, I would say the thing that, that's been one of the things I'm most proud of is that as we've gone down this journey is that what we have is, I think our team has, to, to your point, is that you can't do it in the back end. Our team has begun to think about things on the front end and, and, it, and in different ways. So one, one, one example is we were going through a policy review of stuff and a couple of our team members said, you know, we've got this PA on a sickle cell drug and why do we have it? We, we never deny it. And, and it just makes it so it's like, well, that's that that is just stupid. Right. So we're going to take it off. Right. So so it was something that simple. Right. That was easy. And just just looking at policy with a different lens really brought folks there. We had we had extra money because of, of all of the money that flew through the state, you know, in, in terms of COVID stuff. So what we did is we actually used some of those dollars to send to a significant portion to many of our primary care docs the three months prior to going live with managed care. And ask them to do something around equity. We didn't. We weren't so prescriptive on them. But what we were saying is that let's let's begin that process as you move into there. And and as they as they as they move, not all of it went to the greatest stuff. But what did happen is we saw people actually changing in their practice level about how they thought about equity and what they would do there. So that was another example of just you know we we have some resources. Let's use those for the right the right thing. Then, then uh, the, the work that we're excited about is all the work around social drivers in North Carolina, which we think has such a such a you know great opportunity to have to, to really address equity. But but again, very proud of it. Um, what was going on? But I was out in the field with a someone who was using some of the tools that we're having, and this great minority provider who's this really a community organization, right? And what he said to me at one point was, "You guys are a whole bunch of smart people doing this work, right?" but it's just impossible to use at the community level, right? Because what you did is you thought about it, and he used the word yuppie, which I think you know nobody uses that so much anymore, 
but but it hit right is that yeah we have all these folks doing it but what we didn't do is go out in the field and sit down with the people that are really deeply embedded in the community to figure out so it's it's really this shift of focus of how do we actually as, as you mentioned so well bring on a front end the conversation so that we're not doing is trying to fix stuff on the back end and so i think that's the i think the successes we're having is not not that they're successful necessarily yet but what's happened is that our team and the folks that we're engaging with are thinking about things before we 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 put things out in the field and that's the most important part right is that we're actually getting there in the beginning and listening to what people are telling us and what strikes me about both of those concepts is, is how you're beginning to see equity be embedded in the institutional culture of the way you're doing your work. And that's positive, right? That's the end goal, but it can also make it hard to see where you're making progress. Like Jemaya, I really appreciate you saying, I wasn't counting vaccinations. I was counting a shift in behavior in our managed care plans because that's really what's gonna be the long-term goal. Vaccinations are a short-term milestone. Um, so how are you keeping track of success, right? You need. You need to feel like you're making progress because one, it is heavy, right? We continue to face a very heavy social and racial justice reckoning in our country. And it can feel like progress is slow. Um, so how are you keeping track of both as things get embedded in your culture, but also just as you meet milestones, how are you celebrating those or recognizing those? Dave, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think, I think the, the question where, you, where you're headed is that we've, we've got to change the way we measure, right? So in the, in the methods that we measure, and I'm going to get this wrong probably, you know, we, we, would, we would do great measurements. We'd look at infant mortality and we'd have some high level stuff. What we decided to do is that, you know, we've actually got to get to the county level to make sure we're measuring that at a level. And at that county level, let's look what the, what the racial, racial disparity is there so that, that we can actually begin target programs in the right place. So we had high level. We knew, we knew clearly that infant mortality was greater in the minority community as well as maternal um, deaths there. But, but we weren't targeting. We were just saying, okay, we know that. What do we do about it? Well, now we're targeting to places where we know, you know the Northeastern North Carolina is a place we have to target, and these are the counties we have to go. So really begin, I think, on the front end. What is that measurement that we need to, to have and how do we do that? And then most importantly, though, you know, we can measure stuff forever, but what the hell do you do about it, right? So often we've, we've had a lot of great measurements and we can talk about it. Um, somebody said the other day, it's like, you know, you can admire the problem or you can do something about it. Well, we'd admire the problem an awful lot, but now we're trying to take, get the information in, make sure we're, we're using that, it's actionable, do something about it, uh, and, then, and then keep repeating, right? Rinse and repeat, make sure that uh, as we do this work, we're, we're honing deeper in, but that measurement is the most important part. Totally agree. Um, Dave, I feel like we've been working together for 20 years. Um, Dave's right on point with the, with the data, um, identifying what is important. The only thing I want to add to that, um, and this is more of a social uh, psychological issue, is that we need to start reframing the conversation and moving from um, skin color to the way people identify themselves. And I've said this often and I continue to say it at some point in the future, we will, if we don't change the way that we think, um, we are going to have a potential white lives matter or a potential some other lives matter movements uh, because it's really structural, the issues that we're facing. Um, and that is the, the 
the real key, right? So for my organization, I will measure success when we have a process in place that uses data that has been informed by the community, um, has a decentralized decision-making structure that includes multiple sectoral stakeholder groups, um, that has a quality improvement process or implications to the work. So for example, if we're required by our funder to meet a certain threshold um, for infant mortality, for example, um, we use that quality metric in, so that we can infuse equity. So we leverage what we already have to do and make sure we apply an equity lens. And so when we, the, the, the other thing, and I'll, sister thing I'll say to my comment is that for the most part, none of us know if, if any of this stuff is going to work, right? Because there really isn't any science-based, evidence-backed research that talks about a holistic approach, particularly in the various different ways that Medicaid is administrated throughout the entire country, right? So there's 50 different Medicaid programs or 51 different Medicaid programs. And, and so like, we don't have any literature reviews on if you do this, this is going to give you a positive outcome. So what my what I what I'm counting as success is that we do something that is logical, rational, and evidence based, data informed, and then, like Dave said, review that, assess it, analyze it, see what works, rinse, repeat, and keep doing it until we get we meet the goals and objectives that we set for ourselves with, which ultimately is, is eliminating disparities um, and, and eliminating inequities in the system. It's just amazing to, to speak with you. And yes, I think it's good, almost time to turn to, to Mark for his sort of reflections back to us. But since you two are such um, thoughtful and important leaders of this work, I did want to create the opportunity for you to share any last things that you had hoped the chance to share during our conversation something that's been important in your state, a lesson learned or a success that we just didn't have the chance to, to cover in our, in our conversation. So any last final insights that you'd like to share? Jamai, I'll start with you. Yeah, uh, thanks for the opportunity again to, to do this. And it's been great uh, speaking with you, Dave. Um, the one thing that I wanna share that I think is the most important behind all of this is the ability for everyone to feel safe uh, when they have conversations around equity. I think it's been highly politicized, highly uh, tribalized. And in the end, it boils down to, do I respect the person next to me? And do they deserve the same treatment that I have, that I get? Uh, do, they do they deserve the same access to resources that I have? Um, and if we can boil that, into a pot and people can all eat that soup. And I think we would feel really good about um, where our, we can go as a country in terms of race relations. Um, some of these really hard, difficult, um, challenging conversations that we have now, I think if people just felt safe that they can say what they need to say in order to understand what they need to understand, um, that is, uh, I think, the best direction that we can go. And that's what I want to impart to, to the leaders that will be listening to your call today. Thank you. Dave? And Jemai, I want to say it's been a pleasure to be a part of this. We'll talk more. The, um, 
it, it, it's, it's impossible to follow it up because it's exactly right. I think that what I would say differently, it's same thing is we have to listen to each other, right? And that's really the point is that uh, the things that are happening in North Carolina is because we're listening to our community and to our and, and folks there. And that's what we have to make sure that we, we institutionalize that real listening, understanding, and then acting on that. But uh, thanks so much for pulling this together. Yeah. yeah. And it's remarkable. It is more challenging than it feels like to actually listen. So I appreciate you both lifting that up as the final reminder of that leadership. Mark, I'll turn it to you to reflect back to us what you've heard. Richard, thank you. And Dave and Jemiah, what a rich conversation. Jemiah, I'd like to start actually reflecting where you kind of brought us to and then bring us back, Steve, to one of the first things that you said. Uh, Jemiah, you were reflecting about how success was having a process in place to use data to engage, engage and collaborate, and then to have a quality strategy. And it made me think, well, those are the things that Medicaid programs do, right? I mean, uh, I reflect back to your comment that on some level, operationally, this isn't hard because it's the stuff that it's the stuff that we do. It's just the application of this to a topic that is historic and structural and and painful in many ways. And when I think about uh, sort of some of the threads of the conversation, uh, an important one is the in, the role of leaders in the in the process. And when we talk about leadership, we often talk about self-awareness. And and you started us with the uh, the important part of self-observation and the the willingness to to be open to what are our blind spots and uh, you know in this conversation where does bias and you know the need to grow fit into that and that you know uh, I was reflecting on the notion that oftentimes we think about organizations are just groups of us as individuals you know they don't they don't survive without us and you know the the idea that Jamai you made this point leaders in organizations are willing to lean into this process and uh, to lead with their own behavior, their own uh, personal commitments with the notion that, you know, others will follow. Uh, and then I, I just want to comment on the, or observe the, the thread about in all of those processes that we always already do in Medicaid, we engage people, we make decisions, the challenge of how do we do that in a different way that brings uh, voice and representation that produces inclusion that leads to different decisions that probably weren't always that hard, but we didn't do, right? And Jemai, you made the important point about the role of safety in those, in those processes. Uh, not a difficult, I mean, not an easy process of uh, creating space where we can have these conversations but the two of you reflect what it what it is for leaders to be able to, to to demonstrate that in creating spaces with your own behavior and the way that you create language uh, that others can can follow. I mean, it's just such a wonderful opportunity to to share your voices in this conversation. And I'm just grateful for the work you do, and also for your willingness to share these stories as part of our podcast series. Thanks so much, Mark. Um, 
I, I think, Jemai, earlier in our conversation, you said you were inspired. Well, I am certainly inspired as we end our conversation today and, and thankful for both of you in the leadership roles that you're playing. Uh, and we'll be cheering for your success and, and cheering for our collective growth as Medicaid programs to do this work better. So thank you all for listening to our podcast today. And we hope you'll also listen to the other episodes of the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. This podcast is a collaboration between the Center for Healthcare Strategies and the National Association of Medicaid Directors. Season three is made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.